We are in the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 17. I hope you guys have been enjoying our little foray through the book of Acts. It has been a wonderful time. Um, I feel like I'm a little underlighted today. Am I, do, I, do I look a little underlighted? I mean, my, you know, I, I always, I'm a very vain person, so um, I, <laughs> there we go. I, I, I just want you all to be able to see me. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's important for me. I just, I know that, that that's a, part, a good, thank you. Thank you, everybody, as we, as we go forward. All right, where were we at? Acts chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, however you're looking at God's Word today, whether it's on an app or whether it's a computer program or whether it is in a paper Bible, if you would find Acts chapter 17. This has been such a wonderful time to consider the way that the earliest followers of Jesus proclaim that they testified, you will be my witnesses, my testifiers, as you preach, as you, as you testify in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And right now we are in the ends of the earth section of the book of Acts on Paul's second missionary journey. And we will begin in Acts 17.1. If you would, wherever you are, and however you're looking at God's word, if you would stand in honor of God and his word as I read this for us together. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah, the Christ, to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying... This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few of the Greek women in the high standing as well as the men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. When the brothers, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. 
All right. Well, this is a, this is a significant passage in the book of Acts. It finds Paul uh, finding his way to a major seaport, the capital of the, of the area, um, of that region, but also down to what is historically the center of the thought world of the known world, which is Athens. And so I want to say a little bit about this passage, a little bit about, uh, about what, what, what's happening in this passage and what we can learn, what maybe this has for us today as we are here in the city of Orange, or if you're in Yorba Linda, or uh, you're in Villa Park, or Garden Grove, this has something for us today. I don't want to leave out Anaheim, or Irvine, or any of those places either, or even Westminster, or wherever you're watching today. What does this have for us? These are the earliest followers of Jesus, and they are proclaiming the good news of Jesus, and today we're going to find out that that takes them to a lot of different places. Let's look at a map, because why would we not look at a map while we're here today? Why, well, why would we not look at a map, and why would I not be able to do this? And so I want to actually ask a question about these languages of the gospel. Paul goes to these various places, and as he gets to these various places, that we find out that there are these different cultures, subcultures, these different languages that Paul will preach the gospel in. And so this, where we're at, we saw that Paul, coming from Tras, last week we were in Philippi, so he then moves on to Thessalonica. Thessalonica is about 100 miles away from Philippi. It's a port city. You can see this nice little port. It's a very guarded port. It, it's a great place. It's, it's a center of commerce. And what we're going to see is that there is a shift with the Apostle Paul from here on out that... In the, in the early missionary journeys, Paul will go to a lot of kind of smaller rural cities, and he makes his way up through Turkey doing that. But once he gets up here into Greece, he's now going to be in very large urban centers. And this is a, very, this is a different environment than what we saw even in the Gospels with Jesus. Jesus is in very rural environments. Obviously, Jerusalem is a city. Uh, is a cosmopolitan city, but largely rural and, and, and out, of, out in, this, in the countryside. Now Paul is going to take the message of Jesus into largely urban centers. So he takes this three-day journey from Philippi to Thessalonica. We're going to see that there are some, there's some trouble in Thessalonica, and we're going to walk through that. And he makes his way to Berea. You do, we do wonder if the, he makes it a little bit of a turn, because if he stays on this, this is the Via Ignatia, and this Via Ignatia, if it keeps going, it goes up over here, and it makes its way ultimately to Rome. But what we're going to see is that once this trouble hits, he makes a bit of a left turn to Berea, and then changes course, coming all the way down to Athens, and the team is going to split up. The team's going to split up. Timothy is going to go back to Thessalonica. Silas is going to stay in Berea, and Paul is going to go down here to Athens, and they're all going to rendezvous together down here in Corinth, which is next week, okay? Next week is that. But what we see here is we see this really interesting passage where Paul and his team go into these various places, and they kind of speak these different languages. They, they have to be conversant in various languages, whether it's the synagogue or the Roman tribunal or whether it is the, the philosophical elite of the day, Paul goes into all of these places having to know these different subcultures and these different, these different languages, so to speak, 
and proclaim the name of Jesus. And we're going to ask the question, what is Paul doing here? And how do we see ourselves in today's world? What kind of languages do we know? What kind of subcultures do I or do you particularly have an in with that you can take the gospel into that maybe nobody else would? I mean, how many rabbis would be able to walk into a Roman tribunal? How many rabbis would be able to walk into the Areopagus? We're gonna, and we're going to walk through this and see just how seriously Paul takes this idea of testifying about Jesus to the ends of the earth, all the way. And so we're going to ask this question about these languages of the gospel, fluent in language. Sometimes I step back and I ask, even as we look at that map, and you think, what would this have sounded like? I think a lot of times I think about this question about what might this have looked like for Paul to travel, and I think we all have these like images in our mind of what a, a three-day journey on foot or maybe on donkey or carriage a hundred miles. Has anybody ever traveled a hundred miles in a carriage, right, or on foot? That this this trip from Philippi to Thessalonica. But I think one thing we might ask is not only what might this have looked like, but to ask the question, what might this have sounded like? We all have our English translations, right? And we're like, of course, this is all done in English, right? No, it wouldn't have been all done in English. This is done in multiple languages, and we're going to see that, like when Paul's in Jerusalem, the, the street language of Jerusalem is Aramaic. The language of the synagogue is, in, is Hebrew. The language of street traders is Greek. But we're also going to note that when Paul goes into Roman environments and he talks to Roman governors, and the, the language is Latin. And so this, this is a multilingual effort. And Paul goes into all of these places, and he has some kind of competency in all of these languages, but not just these languages, as we think about it, he also has this competency in walking in to rooms that he might not be familiar with, to a, to a subculture or to a world that maybe not everybody would have had access to. Obviously, and we're going to look at what some of those worlds are, and what I want us to do is I want us to also ask the question, what kind of worlds, what kind of cultures, what kind of subcultures, what kind of languages do I have access to uniquely that maybe not everybody in the church, in Taft Avenue Community Church, has access into, that you have a background, you have expertise, you have a world that you're familiar with, whether you install windows or whether you're a police officer or whether you're, you know, whether you are working in, in the marketplace or whether you're a teacher or whatever that is, you have skills and competencies that give you, that let you into various rooms in this world. And what Paul thinks is significant and what the earliest followers of Jesus think is significant is that that access into these rooms is extremely valued by the earliest followers of Jesus. That essentially, they want the gospel preached in every language, not just literally every language, but every language that you know, every room that you can walk into, every sphere of competency in this world, they believe that the gospel, the good news, that God's saving power is available in Jesus, 
ought to be taken into that room that you and you alone may have the competency for. And Paul is going to model that here. This is an amazing chapter because in just one chapter, we're going to see three major areas very different from each other that Paul attempts to take the gospel into. Are you guys ready? I'm pretty pumped up. I mean, this is a really significant passage, not only because we had an awesome map already, but because there's a lot of stuff that's in here that I think really helps us as we understand what do the earliest followers of Jesus value. So I want to explore these languages, these subcultures, and explore how Paul testifies, how he proclaims the good news that God's saving power is available in Jesus, how he does this in these various places. All right, so here's the first place, the first language that we talk about, and that is the language of the synagogue. Look in chapter 17 and in verse, well, we'll start in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. This is the first city that Paul goes into on this, while he's made it up to Macedonia, because you remember when he goes to Philippi, he tries to find a synagogue, but there are not enough, evidently there are not enough Jewish males in that city for a synagogue. So he goes down to the river where he finds women praying. This is the first synagogue that he comes across, and it says this, verse 2, Paul went in as was his custom. And what we'll see, even when he gets down to Athens, wherever Paul goes, the first stop that he is going to make is to stop in the synagogue of that city. And because of after the, the, the Babylonian exile, if we go back in our Bibles, after the Babylonian exile, and, and all of these, these, these Israelites, these Jews, they, they make it out to Babylon, and then the Persians take over, and what happens is that when the Persians, they allow, people, they allow the nation of Israel to come back, but then they also take little pieces of that people group, and if they want to settle an area, they send out a pocket of Jews because they're good citizens. They, they don't cause trouble. Um, they're good people, essentially. And so what we're going to find is that there are synagogues all over the Mediterranean region that are what we call diaspora or scattered Jews. And Paul will find this in whatever city he goes into, his very first stop is into a synagogue. And we'll actually pay attention to that if you know the book of Romans, and you read the book of Romans, Romans 1.16, what does it say? I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel, right? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What? To the Jew first, and then to the Greeks. And that is Paul's pattern of sharing the gospel when he goes into a city. He finds the synagogue first, and he, and he proclaims, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is King, and he does that as long as he can. We're going to see that here, he does it for three Sabbaths. So Paul makes it three weeks in to Thessalonica with that message, but we're going to find that you can only preach that Jesus is the Messiah and that the Messiah suffered and died. You can only do that for so long in a synagogue in the first century before you were essentially kicked out or forced to create your own synagogue, which is what we see Paul essentially doing once he is sent out from the synagogue. All right, so the language, what we find, and as we do this, we're going to see Paul will do this. And one of the reasons why Paul is able to do this 
is because Paul, as we've talked about earlier in this, in this series, is that Paul is a Jerusalem-trained rabbi. And if you're in the diaspora, the scattered synagogues, if there is a, a rabbi, a trained rabbi that comes to your synagogue that is from the homeland, that is from Jerusalem, trained under Gamaliel, that Paul has essentially this, this card. Like, he doesn't really have a card. It's not like, hey, show me your rabbi card. Here you go. But he has, he knows, the, he knows how to get a hearing in a synagogue. Oh, this, these, these people, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they've come from Jerusalem. Brother, do you have a message for us? We saw that earlier in chapter 13, but this gets him in the door of the synagogue. As was his custom, he goes into the synagogue. And so Paul gives the gospel there. It says in 17.2 that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And what that implies is that he's laying these things out. He's teaching these things. He reasons from them to them from the scriptures. Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. It's necessary for the Messiah to suffer. Now, as much as Paul walks into the synagogue and he knows the right words to say, he knows, he knows the language, he knows the customs, he's very comfortable, he's a teacher, he knows a lot. This is, this is his wheelhouse, right? You probably got a wheelhouse too, right? You like you see every once in a while you see somebody you're like yeah that that guy's in his wheelhouse that is it Paul's in his wheelhouse, but we find out that there are certain things that as much as he might make his hearers feel comfortable that he belongs there, he is going to say some things that are difficult for them to hear, and sometimes the good news, which is ultimately good news that God's saving power is available in Jesus that that good news might challenge our sensibilities and the sensibilities of the people who hear it, and this is one way that it does. You look again back in verse 3, explaining and proving it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah. So there's a couple things there that might not work in a regular synagogue, and that is Messiah was supposed to be triumphant. Messiah was supposed to come and conquer. But Messiah, what Paul is going to try to do is to explain and to prove that Messiah had to suffer and die and be raised again and be vindicated, that triumph comes but Paul and we actually are in a time where we do not see Jesus triumphant. We're like, wait a minute, Craig, what are we doing here? What? I thought we came because Jesus is king. Yes, he is the king, but do we see it? Do we see it in our government? Do we see it in our culture? We do not see Jesus triumphant right now. And Paul is in the similar spot. And so he proclaims that the Messiah had to suffer. That essentially Paul says 
if I'm going to preach about Jesus, I have to mention the cross. I have to mention that Jesus was humiliated on the cross. And if you want to walk into a synagogue and say, hey, that Messiah guy, he's got to be humiliated first. That's not going to go over very well. Kind of like a pregnant pole vaulter, that's going to go over, right? All right, I should watch it. I mean, no offense to any pregnancies out there or pole vaulters for that matter. Are you guys with me? All right, because it's crickets in here. I don't know. Um, All right, let's keep going. So this idea that there are some essential things that may have challenged the sensibilities of those in the synagogue. The Messiah had to suffer, the cross, and the idea that God's love is self-emptying. It's not triumphant. I think we, I love, look, I think there's something about being an American. (laughs) I'm I'm an American, okay, that loves triumph. I love overwhelming power, shock and awe. We talk about this all the time. We love triumph. We love winners. And there's something that we have to admit when we come to the gospel that Jesus was not about overwhelming triumph. Jesus was about self-emptying himself. Paul will write eventually in Philippians chapter 2 that even though Jesus was was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God, something to be desperately held on to. He released it. He had triumph in his hands and he released it for a better way. The way of self-emptying love. And that will challenge the sensibilities of the synagogue. It will challenge the sensibilities of our own heart. And one of the nice th- one of the things about this and hearing Paul in these various places, when he does challenge their sensibilities, we know that he's not just, we, we kind of realize that these are essential things for the gospel. We can't just cast these off. Like if he would, if, if Paul wanted a better hearing in the synagogue, he could have just not mentioned this because it's kind of one of those things in Christianity that you, you don't, you know, it's one of those secondary things. You don't really need it, right? But this is central. The Messiah had to suffer and raise again from the dead. All right, so that's the language of the synagogue. I guess, again, to ask the question, what language, how conversant are you in this? We also find that when Paul goes to Berea, if you look in, um, in verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, as was his custom. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So this idea that in this world, being aware of the scriptures, being aware of of what God is doing, being able to reason from the scriptures is highly regarded, and Paul does it well. That's his wheelhouse. All right. But that's not the only place where Paul is going to have to go. Paul will also take the gospel into the language of Roman politics. We saw this last week as Paul was in Philippi, and Paul uh, stirs up, well, he heals a slave girl, he disrupts the economy. For economic reasons, they put Paul in prison. They beat him up, they put him in prison. But Paul then calls upon his Roman citizenship. That one of the other things about the Apostle Paul that gets him through the door, or actually out of chains, if you will, 
It will eventually get him a free ride to Rome, though it's in chains. But Paul is a Roman citizen. And that competency, that truth about who he is, it gets him in the door of various Roman places. Get him into some Roman palaces. It will get him in front of certain judges. One of the things that we find out here is that Rome, as much as we might think, because Paul will die at the hands of Nero, a Roman Caesar, but in the book of Acts, one of the things we need to note is that Rome is actually a little bit ambivalent towards the message of Jesus and the earliest followers of Jesus. There are times where Roman authorities will cause problems for the Christians, like in Philippi, where they arrest them and beat them up. But once they find out he's a Roman citizen, what do they do? Hey, go on your way. We don't want any problem with you. We're going to find out that here it's going to cause some problems for him. But when they get down to Corinth, the Corinthian magistrates are going to be like, hey, look, you guys do whatever you want to do. You're fine. Like, there are times where the Rome, and when Paul gets into Jerusalem at the end of the third missionary journey, it'll be Romans who rescue him from a mob of angry Jewish protesters. So there are times where Paul's ability to con- have conversations with the Romans will jeopardize his ministry, and there are other times where his conversations with Romans will, will help his ministry. But it is a particular skill and a particular subculture that he's able to enter into. In this case, it causes some problems. Let's see what it says. Look in verse 17, or chapter 17 and verse 5. In verse 4, it says, Some women were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So he has some success in the synagogue, but in verse 5, but the Jews of that synagogue were jealous. So they go down to the Agora, the marketplace, and they grab a bunch of day laborers. They grab a bunch of people who are out of work, the rabble from the marketplace. People who are looking for work but can't find it. And anybody who's looking for work but can't find it is a little irritable. If you're in that spot, you know that kind of irritation. And probably when you watch the news, it gets you angry. It gets you upset. If you've got financial problems and you hear about politics or you hear about somebody messing up, you get angry really quick. And so these Jews from the synagogue, they go down to the Agora, the marketplace, and they find people who are easily stirred up. And they take, they go to the, the marketplace, or they go into the, uh, let's see, verse 6. When they could not, uh, they, they go to Jason's house. And they're looking for Paul and Silas, but when they get to Jason's house, they could not find them. So, verse 6, they drag Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. And this is what they say. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, what they're saying is this, that Paul and his traveling companions, they are preaching something that is turning the order of the Roman world upside down. It's turning the order of the Roman world upside down. It's taking the sensibilities of Rome and it's casting them aside for its own sensibilities. And if you're a patriotic Roman, you're like, well, look, the Roman way of life is the best way. That's what keeps the order. That's what keeps the Roman peace. They've turned the world upside down. They've come here, and Jason has received. Jason is here. Jason set up communion for us today. I thought this would be a good passage for Jason. 
And Jason has welcomed them. And so they bring Jason before them. And they're saying, they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. All right, here's my question to you. Are these charges true, or are they trumped up? One of the ways that we might note is to look at what is the response of Paul and Silas after this. What do the Thessalonians do with them? They don't just say, hey, why don't, look, we had a little problem today, and I'll tell you what, in the morning, why don't you guys pack your stuff up and let's, let's move you on? No, what do they do? That night, they send them out that night. So whatever these charges were, they stuck. And as a matter of fact, what it says is that they only release Jason only after they receive bail from him. That Jason and the rest of the people in his household, they have to pay a fine. And then they send Paul and Silas away by night. And the, 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 what we need to understand is that these charges are true. There is another king. And that king is Jesus. And that king is more of a king than Caesar. And he demands more allegiance than Caesar. Now, if you preach that in the Roman world, that's going to be a short run for you. Unless you move on and you stay ahead of it. And we find out that Paul does have a, he does stay ahead of it until about 66 AD where he's called, he's called into and he's actually tried and beheaded because he proclaims another king. It's a true charge. And there's a seriousness about it. And I think we have, to, we have to understand that seriousness. That as we go into the world of politics, and I've said a little bit about this already, but as we go into the, into the world of politics, we have to be aware that we serve a king who has authority. More authority than our president, more authority than our Congress, more authority than our judicial system. Our king is the king of the universe. Humiliated, yes, at the hands of sinners, but vindicated by God and now seated at the right hand. And there are times where that will get us in trouble. We serve a king. And like Paul, just understand this, that Paul does, Paul has to walk this line. Paul will walk this line. He wants fruitful ministry. And so he's not just walking into a town with a sign, Jesus is king, Caesar stinks. Like he's not just doing, he does it in a way that he will get a hearing. So we have to understand that there is a shrewdness about the way Paul preaches the gospel. Yeah, let's keep going. I have, there's, there's more to say. There, there's, you, duh, there's more to say about this? Yes, there is. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. But Paul knows the language of Rome. He talks about a king. He talks about Jesus is Lord in a world where Caesar is Lord. And Jesus brings the kingdom of God, not the empire of Rome. And this is the world that Paul preaches that message in. All right, you guys with me? Because that, that should pump you up. That pumps me up. It, it challenges me because I live in a world where I live in a world where it's like, 
you know, I'm an American, but I'm, I'm, a, but I'm a believer in Jesus. My citizenship is in heaven. And as Paul will write to the Philippians, that you are in a colony of heaven here in this foreign land. Your real citizenship is in a place where you've never been, but you will one day go, and your citizenship is here. And so in many ways, Taft Avenue Community Church is a colony of heaven with the sensibilities of heaven, with, with the understanding that the ways of heaven are better and that we pray your kingdom come, and the place where your kingdom comes is right here, right now, even though we're surrounded by a different empire. And we need to think long and hard about what the sensibilities of the kingdom are. What does Jesus really care about? What are the things that make God upset? What are the things that we need to be most vigilant about? As Paul will say to the Romans, not to be, trans not to be conformed to the pattern of this empire, this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may approve what the will of God is. Not the will of your governors, the will of God, his good, acceptable, and perfect will. All right, again, I could go, I could go on because it, it, it's significant. This is, this is where we live right now. All right, let's keep going. The last place which I think is fascinating is that Paul not only speaks the language of the synagogue, also the language of Roman politics, but he also speaks the language of pagan philosophy. This is probably the most um, shocking. I don't know which one is most shocking. This is pretty shocking to me. Let's look down in verse 18. So Paul, in verse 15, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Verse 17. So what does he do in Athens? He goes to the synagogue. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. As he's in the marketplace, he runs into two types of philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And they're both materialists, and they both have kind of different ways kind of this idea that um, we need, we, we need to, anyway, we don't need to get into Epicurean philosophy, but the idea of pleasure is a high thing, but it's, it's a mental pleasure. And the Stoics are like, look, we, we, you got to stay, you got to be self-reliant. Like he has these conversations with the Epicureans and the Stoics and listen to what they say, listen to what they say about Paul. Now we, and this is, I want to say this, Paul knows the language of philosophy, the philosophy of the day. And Athens is the intellectual center of the world at the time. It's on the decline because, honestly, the Romans, the Greeks cared about philosophy. They wanted a philosopher to lead them. Uh, the Romans wanted a warlord to lead them. Okay, so Athens is kind of on the decline while Rome is on, is on the rise, but still the, the center of the, of the intellectual world of the day. And in order to be conversant in the intellectual world of the day, you've got to know some of the, of the thought and some of the writers and some of those things. And, and Paul knows some of those things, but it's interesting that he's not, a, we wonder how much he knew. And here's why. Look in, um, uh, look at verse 18. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. All right, now let me just say this. Those are not complimentary things to say. <laughs> if you walk in to Athens and you start speaking out and they say, what does this babbler have to say? What the word is, is it's the word spermologos. It's what does this seed caster have to say? And it basically is, is this idea that this guy's a hack. They're basically saying this Paul guy, he's just kind of piecing together a bunch of stuff that he doesn't really know about. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, or whether that's just, they don't like what he's saying. They don't like what he's saying eventually. But then they also say, he seems to be preaching foreign divinities. Do you know what Socrates, what got Socrates killed in Athens? This is 400 years earlier. Socrates is killed. He has to drink the hemlock. He has to kill himself because he preaches about foreign divinities. So what they're saying is like, like this guy, this guy's a hack. I'll tell you what, let's, let's take him to the place where we evaluate these ideas. So they take him to the Areopagus, verse 21. Now the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus. Areopagus is the, the hill of Ares in, in Greek. If you're a Roman, Ares is Mars. And so this is what? It's Mars Hill. This is an open-air place. You can go there today. I'm going to lead a tour in, in October with a group called GTI. Um, one day, maybe we'll do, I want to do a, an Israel trip before we do a Turkey-Greece trip. Um, but um, you can go there. Um, we're going to go there. We're going to go to Athens, and you can stand. You can climb up onto this rock, this rock outcropping, which is the Areopagus, Mars Hill. And there's, there's kind of a platform, and there's rock outcroppings, and it would be like everybody would sit around in this natural amphitheater, rock bowl amphitheater, and someone would get in the middle, and they'd start talking about whatever it was that was on their mind. It was an open-air marketplace of ideas. And if you wanted to talk and you wanted to converse you would go to the Areopagus. And Paul goes there today. I think what's interesting is they call him a hack, but if you go to the Areopagus today, there's a, like a, there's a placard with Paul's speech on it. <laughs> right there. Nobody else, just Paul. Paul's speech is right there. So it is a, it's a fascinating place, and you can go and you can see it today. And what Paul does is he, again, just like he does in the synagogue, let's find the points of contact that will allow people to hear the message that I'm giving. With the Roman authorities, let's find the points of contact, Roman citizenship, that they can hear the message that I'm preaching, and so this is what he does. He starts in 1722. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I see that you're very religious. I saw this shrine to the unknown God. You all are searching for God. You even have a shrine to the God that you cannot know or do not know. I'm here to tell you, you can know who God is. He finds the point of contact. He goes on, he paraphrases Epimenides in 1728, in him we live and move and have our being. He quotes Erastus when he says, for we are indeed his offspring. 
Paul knows a little bit about Greek philosophy, it turns out. And maybe the Epicureans and the Stoics are like, oh, hey, this guy's more than a hack than what we thought. Because essentially, maybe they heard him speaking in, his, in Jewish terms, but now he's speaking in Greek terms. So Paul has used his upbringing, his education, now to walk into a place, to walk into an area that maybe a Jewish rabbi would not have been able to walk into. So this is my question for us today. Paul has all of these things that have compiled in his life and has given him competencies, his Jewish upbringing, his rabbinic training, his classical education, his Roman citizenship. And what does he do? He leverages these things so that he can get into rooms, into open spaces, and he can proclaim that Jesus is Lord. He can proclaim the good news that God's saving power is available in Jesus. And this is my question for us as a church, for you as you're watching this. What kind of skills and competencies has God brought into your life over your lifetime? What abilities do you have? What things have you learned? What rooms have you been given access to because of your competencies in the marketplace? The earliest followers of Jesus valued people who could take those competencies, walk into those rooms that only they could walk into, and to somehow find the language to say, God's saving power is available in King Jesus. Now, I don't know exactly what that sounds like in the rooms that you are able to walk into. I don't know what that exactly sounds like, but I'll tell you what, you know who does know what that sounds like? You do. Because you know that room. And what my question is for us today is, what room can you get into that I can't get into? What group can you talk to that I would never be able to talk to? What place can you proclaim Jesus that if they looked at me, they'd be like, yeah, whatever. But with you, you have credibility there. The earliest followers of Jesus banded together and they said, you know what we need to do? You've got credibility there. We're going to send you there. You've got credibility there. We're going to empower you to go there. You've got credibility there. We're going to give you some funding and some people, and we're going to send you there. The Holy Spirit says, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I've called them to do. Why? Because they had those competencies. And what I want to challenge us with is, how has God particularly gifted and skilled you to take the gospel to a place that not everybody can take it to? And what we see here in chapter 17 in the book of Acts is that Paul has that on full display, walking into places that he had no business walking into. But he developed enough of a competency that he could get a hearing. And listen to what it says after he goes on to the Areopagus. Verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we'll hear about again, this again later. But some men joined him and believed. Among also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Look, when you walk into a room, not everybody's going to hear you out. Not everybody's going to hear you, but you know what? Some people will. 
Not everybody. Might not even be 90% of the people in that room. But you know what? God has a plan for those 10% that do. For that 1%. God will change the world with one person. That's why one of our values is the overwhelming value of each person. Because I believe that there any one person in this room or at their, your home that when God gets a hold of your life can change the world. That God can work into your heart and bring up a passion and a fire that you would go out and you would say, Jesus is king and I will follow him with my whole life and that will change this world. Even if it's only for one person, you might have been given the competency to walk into an unfriendly room, give the gospel, and 99% of the people would revile you, but one person's life would be changed and it would change the world. That is the call of following Jesus. Forsake the 99 for the one. That's the math of the kingdom. And that's what we see here. The risking being reviled as a, as a hack just for these two people. Dionysus the Areopagite and Demars. I wish I knew more about these two, but they got mentioned here, and I would imagine that they went out and they shared that Jesus was king, and they might have been able to walk into a room that Paul wasn't able to walk into. And God's kingdom came a little bit more that day. What room can you walk into? What competencies has God given you? How can you then translate the good news that God's saving power is available in Jesus into that language, into that room? That's our call.